Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. You feel free to call in. If you have a Bible question or you want to make a Bible comment, feel free to call us. That's what we're here for. I always have something I'm talking about coming from God's Word, but always let the callers take priority. Whatever I'm talking about, whatever I'm preaching on, if I get a call, you guys are going to get the priority because that's what this program is about. It's letting the callers have their say, ask their question. That's one of the best ways to learn the Bible is question and answer. We see that a lot of times the way Jesus taught was through question and answer. So if you have a Bible question or comment, be sure and give us a call at 877-655-6755. The lines are wide open. Last week, we were talking about the plan of salvation. And I started re- this discussion by reading 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then I emphasize verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. What this is talking about is what we could call the plan of salvation. This plan of salvation that Jesus would come and redeem us with his blood. Verse 20 said it was, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. I think that's really interesting. You might think, well, God creates man, they sin. God says, well, I need to come up with a plan to save them from their sin. No, God had this plan to save mankind from their sins even before he created man. He knew he was going to create us with free will. Evidently, he knew we were going to sin. So even before he created man, he had the plan to save man from their sins. And that plan was, the plan of salvation was that Jesus would come and die on the cross for our sins. That's the plan of salvation. And last week we started going through some passages that show what the plan, or show what the problem was that the plan is intended to solve. And and so we went through passages talking about sin, how that man sins, starting with Adam and Eve. Everybody sins. We're separated from God by our sin. Each person is separated from God by their own sin, not by Adam and Eve's or anybody else's. That's what we were going through last week. We lose our relationship with God. We're lost on our way to the bad place to spend eternity with the devil and burning fire because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. No way we can be saved without forgiveness. And there's no way we can solve the problem. So God came up with this plan to solve the problem for us. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. That's the problem that the plan of salvation is intended to solve. The problem that we created with our sin. We can't solve the problem. God solves it by sending his son. That's the plan of salvation. Now, I said last week that since that plan was come up with before the foundation of the world, then we should expect to be able to read about that plan all the way throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. And we can. The first place that I know for sure that Jesus is referred to, that this plan of salvation is referred to in the Bible is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'm going to turn there and read that. But if you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. Give us a call at 877-655-6755. Let me read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, or Abram, 
Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, this promise is made to Abraham two or three, perhaps four times in the book of Genesis. I think even once to his son Isaac, maybe even to his grandson Jacob. The same kind of promises. And maybe we could outline this set of promises into three points. First, God was going to make out of Abraham uh, well, I should say, first, he was going to give Abraham, his descendants, a land. That's in Genesis 12, verse 1, a land. And we know that God did fulfill this promise. He ended up giving Abraham's descendants this land. We call it, where you look on a map today on, on, on a globe, Israel. Well, he promised him a certain land. And, and basically, if you read through the book of Joshua, it's all about the conquest of that land. Through military battles, God helping the Israelites, and they ended up getting all of the land that God had promised. The second thing that God promises Abraham here in Genesis 12, he's going to make of him a great nation. I think one place it says, I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the seashore, if I'm remembering correctly. And sure enough, you'll remember that within a couple of generations of Abraham, with Joseph and that scenario with his brothers, the, the, the descendants of Abraham ended up going into slavery in Egypt. And when they came out of slavery, led by Moses, some 400 years later, there were millions of them. So God did exactly what he said. He made out of Abraham a great nation, many, many descendants. But I think the third promise is the most important thing. Genesis 12, 3. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. You know, what? one thing that's really important about that, that sometimes people might not catch on, catch, is that it's all the families of the earth, not just Abraham's family, not just Abraham's descendants, but all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, how did that, how was that promise fulfilled? We know for sure how it's fulfilled because Acts 3 quotes that passage, Genesis 12, verse 3, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and applies it. To Jesus, I'm reading the last three verses in Acts 3, 24 through 26 says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds, that's just an old King James word for families, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So, the book of Acts is quoting Genesis 12, 3 here, and then he's about to tell us how it's fulfilled. Verse 26, unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, send him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. In thee, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed? How? Acts 3 explains it, if you didn't, even, if you didn't know aside from that. It's because a descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, is going to come and die on the cross for the sins, not just Abraham's descendants, but the families of all the earth, even the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the plan of salvation right there, that Jesus was going to come and die. And God begins, if not before, God begins to talk about that plan of salvation in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, I think, makes an, sort of an allusion to this point I'm making here. 
I'm turning in my Bible, if you want to turn in yours, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, the heathen through faith, I guess talking about the Gentiles there, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So he's, it looks like he's quoting to me. It looks like he's quoting Genesis 12, 3 again. And it said, in saying that in thee shall all the nations be blessed, that God was in effect preaching the gospel unto Abraham. And he was in an encapsulated form. God, when he, when he gave Abraham that promise, he was talking about Jesus coming, dying on the cross for everybody's sins, not just Abraham's descendants, but everybody, Jew and Gentile. Now, not all, the, all those details are in Genesis 3, but that's what God was talking about when he told Abraham that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There we have the plan of salvation right there in Genesis 12, 3. It's called preaching the gospel unto Abraham here in Galatians 3, verse 8. And so what I'm saying is we see this plan of salvation, that God is going to send his son to die on the cross for our sins. We see references to it all the way throughout the Bible, starting at least by Genesis 12, verse 3, that we can prove. If you have a Bible question or comment, why don't you give us a call at 877-655-6755. Any Bible question. Doesn't have to be on this topic. 877-655-6755 is the number to call. You know, besides that promise that we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we also see many prophecies in the Old Testament. Prophecies about the coming of Christ. One of my favorites is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And you might say, it looks like to me, this whole chapter is a prophecy about the coming Christ, his suffering and his death. And it's written hundreds of years before Christ came, if I know my dates. But it's talking about the suffering and the death of Christ. But Isaiah 53, verse 5, beginning says, For he, talking about Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You talk about the understatement of the, of the year. This says Jesus was wounded and bruised for our iniquities. It was much more than being wounded and bruised. He was crucified. I don't know if you ever saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, but I saw it. And probably the only thing I remember from the movie was them scourging Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, it says he was scourged. Three words talking about Christ. You might not appreciate what happened to Christ there, but when you see the movie and you see that they took a whip with bones and stones tied to the end of that whip and just basically tore all the flesh off the back of Christ. I think you can better appreciate that those three words, he was scourged, the pain that Jesus had to go through. Not only that, you know, one of the things that made me cringe so much when I was growing up as a kid was the fact that these nails were put through his hands. They say not through his palms, but through his wrist. Either way, the nails would have to be big enough to be able to hold up the weight of Christ as he's on the cross. Can you imagine somebody nailing these nails that are large enough to hold up the weight of a man through your hands, through your wrist? The terrible pain Jesus must have gone through. And, and the crucifixion itself was intended to inflict pain. You know, in Alabama, where I'm from, we have we, we, if somebody's convicted of murder, perhaps more than one murder, and they want to execute that criminal, they do it with electric chair. Some states have 
lethal injection. They're trying to put to death the criminal with the least amount of pain possible. The crucifixion, the very opposite. They're trying to inflict the most amount of pain possible. I'm told that our English word excruciating comes from the word crucified. So Jesus, you think about him. He had it made in heaven. He leaves his lofty position in heaven, becomes a man, a servant at that, knowing full well that he's going to have to suffer this horrifically painful, torturous death. Boy, he must, sure must have loved us a lot to be willing to do that. Why do I bring all that up? Well, I think if we talk about the death of Christ and what Christ went through, we're going to develop a better appreciation for it. And if we appreciate, the more we appreciate what Christ went through for us, the more we're going to be willing to suffer, the more we're really going to be able to serve him faithfully. If you've listened to a lot of these programs, the Bible Crossfire program, you know I talk a lot about doctrinal issues. Here's what the Bible says about gay marriage or women preachers or baptism, you know. Well, what's going to motivate us to actually, when we find out the truth on those things, Here's what the Bible says we need to believe and practice on those issues. How are we going to be motivated to actually make a change in our life and start practicing, believing and practicing what the Bible says on those issues? Well, we need to develop a good appreciation for what Jesus has done for us so that we'll be better motivated to serve him faithfully. If you have a Bible question or comment, then the lines are wide open. Give us a call at 877 877- Six five five six seven five five. The number to call is eight seven seven six five five six seven five five. If you have a Bible question or comment, let me continue the reading. Isaiah fifty three verse six. It says, "All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all." Have you ever thought about the, how many sins that would be? It says here that the sins of every single person were laid upon Jesus. Now, first of all, that doesn't mean Jesus was guilty of those sins. No, he was the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. Not guilty of any sins. But our sins were laid upon him in the sense that he became responsible for our sins. Or he took the responsibility for our sins. As verse 5 puts it, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, he was punished so that we could have peace with God. He was punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be. So when it says our sins were laid upon Christ, what it's talking about is he took the penalty for our sins. Think about how many sins that would be. You know, sometimes I say that Jesus lived his whole life, the Bible teaches this, perfectly without sin. 33 years. I can barely go 33 hours without committing a sin. But let's just use that as a, as a, as a good round number there. If somebody commits a sin, say once a day, we'd say that's a per- pretty good person. He only sins once a day. He's a pretty good guy. But how many sins would that be total if a person lives 80 years? Well, 80 years times 365 days a year, you multiply all that out, you're getting close to 30,000 sins. So the person that we think of as a good person sins almost 30,000 sins during his lifetime. Well, what about somebody like Adolf Hitler? How many times did he sin per day? Thousands and thousands probably. You add up all of the sins he committed, there's probably hundreds of thousands of sins during his lifetime. Now, we add up all the sins of all the people from Adam and Eve till now all the way out to the end of time. Let's just say that's 10,000 more years. The good people who sin maybe 30,000 times in their lifetime, the people like Hitler, the bad ones that sin hundreds and 
thousands of sins. You're talking about billions and billions of sins. They were all laid upon Jesus, according to verse 6. Doesn't that help us to appreciate what Jesus went through for us? If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. And then Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You, Jesus is compared to a sheep here. A sheep, when he's being led to the slaughter, he doesn't know what's coming. So he doesn't argue or try to object or even probably even try to get away. Now, Jesus knew what was coming, but he didn't argue his case. He didn't argue his case. Suppose Jesus had had a fair judge and he'd argued his case. Would he have been declared innocent or guilty? Well, innocent. He never even committed a sin, much less a crime. So why didn't Jesus argue his case? Because if he had argued his case and been declared innocent and gotten off the hook, then that would have defeated the whole purpose for why he came to this earth, to die for our sins. Can you imagine sitting through a trial, knowing that you could easily prove your innocence, and you know that if they convict you, you're going to be executed. Can you imagine sitting through a trial and never bringing up the evidence that would prove your innocence? I don't think I could sit through a trial like that. Jesus did. He was willing to sit there and not argue his case because he loved us so much. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to go through this torturous death for us. And here we are, not willing to serve him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Piper from Minnesota, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Good evening, Patrick. Nice to hear you again. I haven't called in a while. So, Patrick, I heard you talking a while ago about the sins that Jesus died for, all the sins, and you started adding them up. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. So then, Patrick, if if that's the case, and Jesus died for everybody's sins for all time, and someone believed that Christ died on the cross for their sins, so they believe the gospel, as outlined in Romans and Corinthians, you know, and they're trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for their sins. But the Bible says that you're saved. Ephesians says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit thereafter. So then suppose they walk away after Patrick. Isn't walking away a sin the same sin that you said Jesus forgave? Jesus died for our sins, Piper. That doesn't necessarily mean we've been forgiven for them. You know, when a person becomes a Christian, he's forgiven of all his sins. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world on the cross. But my sins weren't forgiven until I obeyed the gospel. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So Jesus died for my sins, Pat Donahue's sins in 33 AD, but my sins were not forgiven until I believed and I was baptized, Mark 16, 16. Peter said in Acts 2, 38 to some believers, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus died for my sins in 33 AD, but I wasn't forgiven as a believer in Christ, until I repented and I was baptized. And then after I become a Christian, I sin. Everybody still sins after they become a Christian. Well, what about those sins? When Did Jesus die for those sins, the sins I committed after I became a Christian? He died for them in 33 AD. If he hadn't, there's no way I could be forgiven. But I wasn't forgiven in 33 AD. I wasn't even born yet. 
First John 1 John 1.9 tells what a Christian has to do to be forgiven of his sins. First John 1 John 1.9, talking to the Christian, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as a Christian, Jesus has already died for all of my sins, but I haven't been forgiven of them. If I commit a sin as a Christian, if I'm willing to confess them, this verse says God will forgive them based upon the death of Christ. But if I'm not willing to confess them, if I refuse to confess, in other words, let's say a Christian becomes a homosexual and he will, he refuses to repent of that, God's not going to forgive him of that sin of homosexuality. Just because Jesus died for his sins in 33 AD, he's got to trust and obey to become a Christian. And he's got to continue to trust and obey for God to be to forgive him of his sins as he goes. He's got to confess his sins, according to First John chapter 1, verse 9, as a Christian to be forgiven. And if we're not forgiven, we're going to be lost. Galatians 5, 4 says, talking about some people trying to be justified by the Old Testament law, he says, ye are fallen from grace. Now, you can't fall from a tree unless you're in a tree to start with. So you can't fall from grace unless you were in grace to start with. So clearly Galatians 5, 4 is saying, here's some people that were Christians in grace, but because of the way they live, what they taught, what they stood for, they fell from grace. They lost their salvation. They're not getting forgiveness for their sins. They're refusing to repent. So if you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755, 877-655-6755. You know, another prophecy in the Old Testament that I like to mention when I'm talking about the plan of salvation, I mean, there's a there's probably dozens of them, but Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, again, written hundreds of years before Christ came, says, in that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Well, what that's, what is that talking about? Well, it has to be talking about the death of Christ. Something is going to happen that will take care of sin, the death of Christ. But I like the fact that it's compared to a fountain here. You know, if you have a little trickle of water, that'll take care of the thirst of a few people. But if you have a fountain of water, that'll take care of the thirst of everybody. So I think the point of this verse, when it says there's going to be a fountain open, that the death of Christ will take care of the sins of everybody for all time, not just a few people. Jesus's death, this is the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is the plan that God had from the beginning of time that he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. And it's like a fountain. It'll the, the death of Christ, the shed blood of Christ will take care of the sins of everybody. But not everybody takes advantage of that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you got to believe in Christ to take advantage of that. you got to believe in Christ to take advantage. Jesus died even for the atheist. But the atheist, he pretty much wasted. He don't take advantage of it. You gotta be baptized, Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So a believer who refuses to be baptized, he's not gonna be saved. A believer that refuses to repent of his sins, he's not gonna be saved. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody is going to be saved because they don't trust and obey. If you have a Bible question or comment, we got another minute or two, 877 
1-800-227-6755. You know, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I believe that in Matthew 1, 21, um, God is speaking, talking about Mary. It says, and she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All the way throughout the Old Testament, we keep seeing references of Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins. We call it the promised Messiah. Well, I believe there's a reference to it here. We don't have time to continue this, but we'll try to take it back up next week. But it says, he shall save his people from their sins. He's talking about the promised Messiah, someone to come to die on the cross for our sins. Look, if you'd like to have that free one-hour phone Bible study that I offer every week, why don't you call or text me at 256 682 9753. I'll be glad to study with you at your convenience, a Bible study by the phone, whenever it's convenient for you. Give me a call or text me. We'll set up a time for the study. My number to call or text is 256-682-9753.